if you'd go ahead and grab your Bible, if you have one, and go to 1 John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, no worries. We're going to have the words up on the screen. 1 John chapter 3 is in the very, very, very back of the Bible, almost the very end. So head that way. And uh, while you're turning there, I wanted to say, so a little over a month ago, my wife and I had our third baby, a little boy. And when I say my wife and I, primarily she did all of the having the baby part. And uh, I was there like cheering her on. Little boy, we named him Bear Burkhart. Bear like the animal. Yep, we really did that. Let me show you a little picture of this guy, if we have it. There he is. Yeah, he's a cutie. I love that. Um, man, here's the thing. Like naming him Bear was a little bit risky, right? Um, we, we've had some people that instantly we know they don't like it. They're like, oh, what's his real name? Like, yeah, that's his real name. Um, but, but here's the thing. Like, I have no idea how this boy is going to grow up. I don't know what he's going to look like. And so it's a little bit risky giving him this like really masculine manly name when he could grow up to look like I did in junior high, which would be tough on him right? I was, I was kind of a skeleton wrapped in skin that was uncoordinated and still am kind of that. Uh, but in junior high, that was me. So if his name is Bear and that's what he's sporting, then he, he, he has his work cut out for him. But man, we love it. And actually that idea of having, having babies and watching them grow up, not really knowing what they're going to look like has been one of the most fun things for me as a parent. It, it, it's, it's kind of this nine month long anticipation of what will they come out looking like? What, what personality are they going to have? Are they going to look like my wife? Please, I pray to God they'll look like her. Or are they going to look like me? What's going to happen? And it's been so fun to watch our kids grow up and take on, even without trying, the family resemblance, right? My, my poor daughter, my oldest, she has literally the size of ears that I have now. Uh, just giant ears that eventually I think she's going to grow into. Um, but she's just cute as can be, but she, she looks like this weird mix of me and my wife. My youngest is like the spitting image of my wife as a baby. It's the craziest thing. And then Bear, we're not sure really how he's going to turn out. So we're in the process with that. But it's so bizarre to watch your kids grow and watch them take on personality traits that you're like, I didn't teach you to say that. I didn't teach you to look like that when you laughed. But when you did that right there, you looked like me. Now, here's the thing. This isn't a new concept for anybody. We know that kids look like their parents. <clears throat> they take on the family resemblance. Uh, th- this is like really obvious and, and everybody can get this, but that's kind of what John is trying to tell us in this letter. That there's something about God that his kids start to take on the family resemblance. In, John chapter th- in 1 John chapter three, he's gonna make a really risky claim. He's gonna make a really bold claim and he's gonna say, there are only two types of people in the world. It doesn't matter if you uh, grew up in church or not. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. It doesn't matter if you're religious or irreligious. There are only two types of people in the world. There are children of God and there are the children of the world. The children of God, who are they? These are the people that have been rescued and redeemed by Jesus. These are the people that have, in response to the love of God, shaped their entire lives around him. They're looking to him for ultimate significance and ultimate meaning. These are the children of God. And then they're the other category, children of the world. Who are they? These are people that either in this room or in our city have rejected God. And instead of looking to God for ultimate reality and ultimate significance, they're looking inside of themselves to define what those things are. And here's the big question. And it's a really important question. John wants to know, how do you know which category you're in? How can we discern if we're children of God 
or if we're children of the world? This is one of the questions that John is trying to answer and get, give us a grid for. Now, th- that's, that's such an important question in our particular context and culture in Oklahoma. Why is that? If you go to Seattle or if you go to New York, uh, it'll be a little bit different. But in Oklahoma, right here in the Bible Belt, there are many, many, many people who claim to be Christians. Many people claim to be Christians. Doesn't mean that we don't have atheists or agnostics. We have atheists, we have agnostics. Maybe you're actually here today and you're an atheist or you're an agnostic and you're wondering, "Do do I belong here? Yes, absolutely, you belong here. We're glad that you're with us. But in Oklahoma, have you noticed there are a lot of people that claim to be Christians? But when you start digging in, you look at their lives, you wonder, I, I, don't, I don't know, are you really a child of God or are you a child of the world? And this is the question that John is gonna help us answer. Here's what he's done. He's given us a couple traits, some family characteristics to look for, to know if you really do belong to Jesus. So uh, here's the first one. He's talked about holiness a lot. He's given us a lot about holiness. Now, I get it. When some of you hear that word holiness, it freaks you out a little bit. Maybe you grew up in church or maybe you just knew other Christians and you start instantly thinking of heavy-handed, man-centered religion. Do more, be more, try harder. If you really want God to love you, you'll shape up and get over your addictions. That's not what John means when he talks about holiness. When he says holiness, he's talking about people that have experienced the deep and the wide love of Jesus where they are, not where they should be, where they are in the middle of their brokenness, in the middle of their sin, realizing that Jesus has laid their lives down for them. That's done something profound. And the old way of living that they used to love, they they now actually wanna be set apart and they wanna follow Jesus. That's what he means when he says holiness. That's one of the characteristics of being a child of God. But here's the other one, and and they're connected, actually. The other one is love, and that's going to be the big focus of what John wants to talk with us about today, love. So I've got three things that I want to share with you just real quickly, and here's, let me just give you a little heads up on where we're going. The first thing, just about everybody in the room is going to know. It's going to sound very basic, and no one's going to be shocked or surprised by the first one. The second one, I think, is a little bit startling. The second thing that we're going to look at, I think it might actually take some of us, maybe many of us, by surprise when John says what he says about love. And then the third thing that we're going to look at, I think, is going to give you some hope and give me some hope that, if we're honest, we really, really need to carry this stuff out. So that's where we're headed. Here's the first thing that I want you to see, and this is the really basic one that many of us, most of us, are probably going to just instinctively know. And that's the importance of love, the importance of love. So if you're with me, 1 John chapter 3, go to verse 10. Now in the first 10 verses, John's been talking about uh, just this idea of holiness, of when you are a child of God, there's this different way that you live. You live in a set-apart way than how you used to live. But in verse 10, he makes a shift, and now for the rest of this passage, he's going to talk about love. So look at it, verse 10. Here's what he says. By this, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then look at what he says. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. And now he's going to bring in this old story from Genesis chapter four about Cain and Abel. Some of you are familiar with this. He said, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? How do we know? Because we love the brothers and sisters. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is why what John is saying is so important, because he's trying to give us the answer to the question, how do I know what category I belong in? Am I a child of God or am I a child of the world? And what he says is one of the defining characteristics, maybe not the ultimate one, but one of the most important family resemblances that you're going to have if you're a child of God is love for people. Not just love for God, but love for God has to eventually flesh itself out into real love for people. I mean, just listen to how clear he's stating this stuff. In verse 11, he says, if you don't love, you're not of God. Like, let that sink in for just a minute. If you don't love, you're not of God. Verse 14, he says, the way you know that you've passed out of death and into life is how? It's by your love. And then at the very end of verse 14, he says, if you don't love, you abide in death. Like how could John be more clear? He's saying those people that are children of God, one of the family resemblances, one of the characteristics that they portray in their life is love, not just for God, but love for other people, both in the church and outside of the church. Now, this isn't like a new concept. John isn't inventing something new here. He's literally just regurgitating stuff that Jesus had taught over and over throughout his life and ministry. Let me just quote from Jesus in John 13. Listen to his words. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Now that's actually not a new commandment. That's a really old commandment, but he puts a spin on it. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So you're not just to love, but the same way that I've loved you, you are to love one another. And we'll get to that in a little bit. And then he says this, and this is, this is really big. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. How are people that are not in the church, that are outside in the world, how are they going to know who the followers of Jesus are and who the people that aren't? It's by your love for one another. That's how they're going to know. So here's the thing. This isn't the defining characteristic, but it's one of the most important defining characteristics of real Christianity. Do you love? You can know all the theology in the world. You can actually have more theological prowess and wisdom than men like Jonathan Edwards. But if you don't have love, John's gonna say, yeah, I don't think you know him. You could be really serious about sin wanting to put it to death and, and really devoted and attend church faithfully and be very, very serious about Christianity. But if you don't have love, John's gonna say, man, I, I just don't know. You can't know that you know that you are a child of God because that love piece isn't there. Now, here, here's what I wanna do. And I don't know if you feel this tendency in the moment, but when I start looking at this passage, what I wanna start to do is look inside and internalize what John is saying and then I want to start justifying myself that actually I am a person of love. And if you're serious, if you just look in right now and, and, and ask the question, I think what most of us would say is, yeah, I, I've got this. Check, I, I've got this. I'm a person of love. I treat people with respect. I treat people with dignity. I smile at people when I walk down the street. I genuinely do want to love people. There are a few people I don't like, 
but I don't know that I hate anybody. I certainly don't hate enough to take someone's life like Cain. I mean, that's a pretty jacked up hatred to murder your own family member. I'm not like that. So I think I'm good. I've got this, John. Thanks for sharing. And that's why I love what John is gonna say next because he's actually gonna define love for us. And this is the second thing that I want you to see. What is love? If, if this is so important that it's one of the defining characteristics of real Christianity, then what is it? How do we know that we're actually doing it? Because have you ever met a person that willingly admitted, yeah, I just, I'm not a loving person. Think of me as a, as a hateful person. Maybe one or two people. I've never really met a serious person that said, yeah, I'm a hateful person. I'm not a person of love. So how do we know? What is love? John's gonna define it for us. Here's what's so crazy. There are different types of love. There are different types of love. Uh, I love barbecue. I just love it. Let, let me be clear. I do not like barbecue. I love barbecue. If I have free time and if I have some money in my bank account, I will smoke meat on the weekend. That is what I do. I love it. I love the ocean. Josh Curry, thanks to him, he just got me roped in. I had never been to the ocean, never been inside of it until, until he came and like threw me in. It was great. I love the ocean, right? Which really stinks because I'm landlocked in Oklahoma. Uh, so I have to get out all the time. I just, there's something that happens in my soul when I hit the Pacific Ocean. I, I can't explain what it is. I love it. I love my family. I love my wife. I love my kids. More than I could ever tell you, I, I, I love them so much. And I would think that I really love people. I'm a loving person. How do I know if I'm living in the type of love that John is describing? Do I have that type of love that he's trying to tell us that is really one of the key markers of real Christianity? Well, here we go. Look at this one. Chapter three, verse 16. What is love? He's gonna define it. By this, we know love that, Jesus laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do we know love? Here's how we know. It's not just any old love. The love that we're talking about is this sacrificial action for the good of another person. That's Christian love. It's where you actually are driven, not just with mere sentimentality or mere emotion and feeling, but you're driven by this love to actually sacrifice for the good of another person. In fact, you cannot think of real Christian love without also thinking of self-sacrifice. You just can't. He says it right here. He says, we know love because Jesus gave his life for us. The famous passage, the famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave. So one of the ways that we know love is by this giving, and it's not just giving anything, it's giving of self. It's giving yourself away for the good of another person. This is what John is talking about. Not just a sentimentality, not just a feeling, not just a phrase that you say. He's talking about, is there this love in you that you actually give of yourself to other people? Uh, John Stott, one of my favorite commentators, favorite authors. He, he passed away a few years ago. He said this in his commentary on this passage. He says, hate is negative and it seeks the other person's harm and leads to activity against him, even to the point of murder. In other words, hate in your heart, it can't just stay there. It eventually has to express itself in action against other people in harmful ways. But love, he says, love is positive. It seeks the other person's good 
and it leads to activity for him, even to the point of self-sacrifice. And John says, yeah, that's how we know love. It's Jesus' love. And then he, he says, if he's loved us in this way, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And then John Stott, he ends that quote with this. He says, the self-sacrifice of Christ is not just a revelation of love to be admired. It is an example to copy. So here's the thing, like Christianity, it's not just like enjoying what Jesus has done for us on the cross where he willingly laid down his life and the greatest act of love for us so that we could be forgiven and loved. But it's to see that and then that become the way that we love. That's the paradigm. That's the grid by which I now see the world. The way Jesus loved me is the way that I love other people. Now that sounds great, doesn't it? Love like Jesus sacrifice yourself. But what does that actually mean when you flesh that out and live that out? Well, what he says next, I think, puts some flesh on the skeleton. So look at verse 17 and 18. He's going to get a little bit more specific on what this love should drive us to do. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Okay, so here's what John is saying. That one of the key markers of Christianity is love, love for people, but it's not just any old love. It's a specific love and concern for the poor and for the needy and for the most vulnerable in society. One of the ways that you're gonna know that yes, I am a child of God is that there's gonna be this thing inside of you that drives you to sacrifice of yourself for the good of others and not just humanity, capital H in general, but specific individuals who are needy or poor or the most vulnerable in society. This is the type of love that John is describing, love for the poor. As I've been reading through the Bible this year, I've been trying to look at that theme from start to finish. And it really is from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, a thing that God seems to be very, very passionate about. This idea of mobilizing his people for the good of the poor and the vulnerable and the widow and the orphan. It's just something that burns inside of his heart. In fact, God is repeatedly in different ways gonna say, you really can't have a relationship with me if you don't also have a relationship with the poor that's marked by generosity and love, right? Those two go hand in hand. And, and, and in fact, what John is saying in this passage is a regurgitation of an old, old thing that God said back in Deuteronomy. Let me read this to you, Deuteronomy 15. Just listen to the concern and care that God has, not just for humanity in general, but for the poor and the needy and those that are lacking what they need. Here's what he says. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. But what do we do? You shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. A house, a car, money, food, whatever it may be, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give it to him. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be the poor in the land. So do we just throw up our hands and, and overwhelmedness and exhaustion? No, there's ne there, there will never cease to be the poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, 
you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. John is saying the same thing. Hey, when you see someone in need, don't close your heart, but provide. Now, here's what's so fascinating. If you look at uh, church history, a lot of historians, both Christian and non, have tried to ask this question, how did the early church grow so fast? I mean, it was one of dozens of religions in the first century. It was definitely one of the smaller ones. It was without a doubt the most oppressed and the most persecuted. How did Christianity grow and explode to where by the year 300, there were like 24 million Christians across the world? How did this happen? And they've pointed to a lot of things, but here's the one that keeps coming up over and over and over. Non-Christian historians and Christian historians. There was something about the radical generosity of the church that made it so compelling that other people that were far from God were drawn to Jesus because of that. In fact, let me just quote from you uh, Roman Emperor Julian. He's known as uh, Julian the Apostate in history. But this guy grew up in the church, rejected Jesus and Christianity. I believe his uncle was Constantine, the great Christian emperor. And so here's Roman Emperor Julian writing to a friend and he's complaining about the generosity of Christians. Listen to what he says. He says, do we not observe how the benevolence of Christians to strangers has done the most to advance their cause? It is disgraceful that the Christians support not only their poor, but ours as well. While everyone is able to see that our own people lack aid from us. He's saying that this is just, it's, it's put gasoline on the fire of Christianity. They're not only taking care of their own poor, but they're taking care of our poor as well. This radical generosity was one of the key markers of not just belonging to Jesus, but how the church grew in the first place. So catch what John is saying. He's saying, we know that we're children of God, not just by love for God and love for people in a general way, but we know that we belong to Jesus when this love leads us to sacrificial action for the good of another and you start seeing the needs of others and your heart doesn't close, kind of like Gollum would in self-protection, but you open up to give away. This is how we know. How do we do this? Like, what does it look like to live this radical life sacrificial love out. Let me just give you a couple stories, a couple ideas. Um, There's a family at South recently that they were wanting to get a new minivan. By the way, just about every family at South has like 40 kids. Um, It's just how we roll. So everybody has minivans. Uh, They're a high commodity at Frontline South. And uh, this family was about to upgrade to a, a newer year and they had the money in their account to actually get probably a brand new right off the lot Honda Odyssey. They found another family in their community group that had an older minivan, had over 200,000 miles on it, and it was kind of having some issues and breaking down. And they they didn't close their heart off to that need. This family wasn't asking for it. The family didn't even bring it up in a slight way, like, hey guys, pray for me. I really need a minivan. Wink, wink. I'm looking at you, family over here. Wasn't one of those deals. They just were in relationship with each other in such a way that this family knew what was going on in their life. And here's what they did. Instead of going out and buying a brand new minivan, which they had the money to do without taking out a loan, they actually took their money. They took the old van in. They serviced it, got it all fixed up, bought new tires, literally dumped thousands of dollars in this van and gave it to this family. And instead of buying a brand new van, they bought an older van that had a few things that they wanted. That's sacrificial love. 
They could have just gone and buy the van and they probably could have done it on a good conscience. They could have done it without getting into more debt, but they actually chose to open up their heart to the needs of others and think of creative ways to bless and to give even when it hurt. Here's another story. By the way, you don't have to be rich or have lots of money or possessions to do this. You can literally do this with your own life. Here's another story. This comes from uh, Bob Goff. He's uh, just a really crazy guy. He's a lawyer that wrote a book called Love Does. Some of you have heard of that book or read that book. Just his story of loving in really crazy, radical ways. Uh, Bob Goff got famous because he's just kind of a crazy guy and he would make medals for people. And then every day he would find someone to pin a medal on them and just try to bless them and articulate his love for them right? So every day he would do this and kind of became a big deal and started getting invited to all these conferences. It got so big that he was at a hotel about to go to a conference to speak and a limousine picked him up. And he's thinking to himself, this is the most ridiculous thing, a limousine picking me up. I don't need this type of treatment. So he's sitting in the back and he's hating every second of it as they head to the conference where he's going to speak. So he starts engaging the driver hey, tell me about yourself. What do you do? What's going on? How's your life? And the driver begins to share about, yeah, I'm working three jobs, just trying to provide for my family. Uh, I want to provide my kids with a better life than I had. And just as Bob is engaging him, uh, this guy's sharing more and more of a story. And then eventually Bob Bob goes, stop the car, stop the car, stop the car. And the guy like kind of nervously pulls over, "Er, get out, get out, get out of the car. And the driver's like, what are you doing? So he gets out of the car, right? Uh, And then Bob runs over and he looks him in the eyes and he says, hey, have you ever been in the back of one of these? And the guy's like, no, like I'm the driver. I don't sit in the back of one of these. I don't think I'd be allowed to do that. And he's like, you know, you you gotta try it. Get in the back of one of these. Let me drive you. Let me drive you. And the guy's like, no, 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 you can't do that. It's a, it's a, it'll be a huge problem if you wreck this car. And Bob's like, look, I'm a lawyer. I'm speaking at a conference. I'm getting a lot of money for this. I could buy this limousine if I needed to, right? Get in the back of the car, man. So the guy gets in the back. He, he goes, give me your hat, give me your hat. So he's wearing the, the hat. He's in the front. The guy's in the back, the driver's in the back. And he drives him up to the conference that he's gonna speak at. He then gets out, Bob gets out, and he escorts this guy out of the car. He opens up the door and escorts him out. And then he stands in front of him. He looks him in his eyes and he goes, you are the real hero, man. You are the real hero. You've got a story that's beautiful. You're doing something profound. You're loving your family. Man, I love you. I bless you in Jesus' name. You're the real hero here. And that guy's just in tears. Now, let me ask you the question. If someone were to say, hey, what do you think of Christians to that driver what would he say? Man, I've never felt more loved. I've never felt more accepted. I've never, I have never felt that way than when I was around a Christian. That's the most loved I've ever felt ever. It's probably safe to assume that people that were around Jesus would say the same thing. Man, when I'm around Jesus, like I've never felt that. I've never felt so loved. I never felt so important and embraced. Like this is just crazy. I've never felt that when I was around Jesus, it's the most I've ever felt loved. So you don't have to have money to do this. It's just a matter of you opening up your eyes, noticing needs of other people and drifting towards them in a way that's sacrificial and giving of yourself. It might actually mean making a comment instead of just thinking something in your brain. It might actually mean tipping way more than your meal to the waiter, to the waitress, even though it's so ridiculous because that's what love is. It's just sacrificial and it doesn't make sense. 
It might actually mean instead of uh, taking that raise or that bonus and doing something else with it, it's like giving it away to someone that needs it. Like John is saying, this is how we know. This is how we know because we don't close our eyes and shut our heart off to the needs of others in the world, but we open them up and we give. How could the love of God abide in us if we see needs and close our heart down? That leads me to the third thing. And this is where we'll close. This is really important. How do we become people of love? It's such an important deal. It's one of the key markers to Christianity. And it's not just love in general. It's actually love that is sacrificial action for the, for the good of another. How do we become the people that love like this? Can I just make a confession? This is hard because my problem, and I think this is true of all of us, my problem is not that I don't see the needs, right? My problem is that I'm so obsessed with myself that instead of being moved by compassion with those needs that I'm seeing, I just kind of blow right by. How could I reach the needs? Because if I see them, which is sometimes a big if, my heart isn't moved to compassion because I'm so kind of enamored and obsessed with my own life. And anytime I get something that's gonna help me, it's like, oh, that's mine. I'm gonna hoard this and keep this. And what John is saying is, no, it can't be like that. It's gotta be like this. How do we become people that do this? Well, let me tell you what the answer is. It's not in more education. By the way, we need more education on a lot of things, but that's not gonna fix this problem. It's not better laws and policies and systems uh, to create a loving culture. That's, that's not gonna happen. It's gonna be mechanical. It's not even by trying really hard. You can't walk out of this room and go, I've got this and my own human effort and my own strength. I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna pull myself up by my bootstraps and become a loving person. That's not going to work. You know why? Because the problem is a heart problem. You and I have hard hearts that blind our eyes to the needs of other people and close ourselves in so that we only focus on our own need. What could possibly take a hard heart and crack it open? What could take blind eyes and hearts and allow them to see what's really going on around them? Here's what. It's the love of Jesus for you. Here's how John starts. Look at this. First John chapter three, verse one. You got to see this. John explodes in poetry out of nowhere. And he says these words, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Do you hear the explosion in his voice? He's like, See what kind of love the Father has had for us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be is not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This in the Greek is way more epic than it is in English because in the Greek, that word see, it's, it's behold, look, you gotta see this. That's what it feels like. And then the next line says this, of what country is this love from? In other words, where did this love come from? What world, what kind of love would make a God not just forgive his enemies, but adopt them as sons and daughters? Who does that? God does that. See what kind of love he's just lavished on us freely. You see, here's the story. We were the poor ones. 
We were the weak ones. We were the sinful and broken ones. We were the ones that didn't have what we needed and God did not shut his heart off to us, but in mercy and in love, he actually gave himself away on a cross in his death and resurrection so that you and I could be forgiven. And then here's even more mind-blowing news than that. He doesn't just forgive you of past, present, and future sin by grace, but he steps off of that judge's bench after pronouncing you innocent. He takes off the robe and he gets close to you. He gets down on his knees and he says, son, daughter, your family now. That is profound. And when you see that type of love and it slams into your heart, it'll take even the hardest heart, even the most closed off heart and open it up to be a person of love, to give themselves away. I think some of us, this is old hat to us. Adopted by God, by grace, old hat. And I don't want it to be. I don't want, I don't want this to be a truth that you just hear and it's like, yeah, that's great. That's really sweet that he did that. No, I think there's something that should well up in us that we just erupt with joy that drives us to action. Um, recently, there's a video of a little girl finding out news that she's gonna get adopted. And I think to help us get a grid for the type of joy and celebration that we should have, I wanna just show you this quick video. This is like the biggest thing that's ever happened to me. 11-year-old Tana just spent the last two years wishing the judge would make her foster parents her forever parents. They're just caring, loving, they take really good care of me. And then last Monday, her friend, Miss Jackie. We're just little friends, we're just little buddies. The office manager at her school walked in with amazing news. And I grabbed her shoulders and I just said, have you heard the news, baby? Have you heard, honey, you get your forever family? My heart was so happy. It was like, ah, it was like screaming. Tana was so happy the adoption was final, she could not let go of Miss Jackie. Well, she just kept holding me tight. She just held me tighter and tighter. And so I took advantage of that and I just kissed her up one side and down the other. She's easy to cl cl cling on to. Tana's mom is grateful the security camera at school recorded the moment. It just made me feel like, oh my gosh, we've done the right thing. It was all so beautiful. Miss Jackie shared the video. I just need to let people know that, yeah, that there's a lot going on in the world and there's a lot of sadness that we see. But you know what? There's joy that happens every day. Tana hopes people watch this and remember that if you wish for something long enough, it may just come true. Never, ever, ever give up. See what kind of love the Father has had for us, that he has called us children of God, and we are by grace. This is, this love will move you to sacrificial action. It just will. It's the way that it works. So here's what I want to tell you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what God is offering you today. And if it sounds too good to be true, it's so crazy. It's completely true, even though it feels like it couldn't be, that he knows everything about you. He knows the most broken parts of your story. He knows the addiction. He knows the sin. And he's actually moving towards you with a heart of love. He gave his life on a cross for you. There's nothing you've done to outrun that love. And he is calling out to you today that you could be his son or you could be his daughter. He wants to adopt you into his family. So that's the invitation if you're here and you're not a Christian. Followers of Jesus, can this change us? It absolutely can change us. My prayer for us is that we would become people of sacrificial action that don't just say, yeah, we love people, we love God, but it actually comes out in how we live and in how we love.